join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 2. If you're a guest with us today, we usually take this time to walk through a text of Scripture, believing that this is God's Word to us, and so what we want to do is hear from Him. And so we're working through the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under a seat nearby you. And that Bible is yours uh, to take home with you if you don't have a Bible of your own. Uh, the past couple days, um, I was with uh, a friend of mine, Dane Ortland, who's been here to speak uh, several times over the years with his men for a men's retreat. So 54 men gathered together at a retreat center up north uh, for us to consider what does it mean to, as men to be a gospel brotherhood, to pursue true friendship uh, and the kind of friendship that can only come from Jesus and empowered by the gospel. So uh, I went there to speak and bless them, and I came away blessed and filled up. So I'm really encouraged. Um, and so I wanted to share that with you, that there are, there's a like-minded uh, family of believers a few hours away up north, um, and we had an encouraging weekend together. So we are continuing this series in the Gospel of Mark here, and the Gospel of Mark is showing us the way of Jesus. It's showing us who Jesus is, what he came to do, and in particular, his way is the way of the cross. He went to the cross through this gospel, and he calls us to follow him along that way. And Mark focuses on both then Jesus and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow him as a disciple. And we've seen that Jesus is the long-awaited divine king who has come to bring God's kingdom. And everything Jesus says and does shows the power of the kingdom demonstrates the presence of the kingdom around him. And so this is why his ministry is so comprehensive. So we've seen, if you've been with us the past few weeks, this multifaceted nature of the kingdom of God as it dawns with Jesus, as he's casting out demons and healing people of sickness um, and preaching good news. And so last week we saw all of that. And so this morning we come to another story that shows the most important aspect of what Jesus came to do the most important aspect of his comprehensive ministry. He, Mark gives us one more story at the end of several that show this multifaceted character of the kingdom. One more story at the end that is the climax of these stories in many ways and transitions us to the next part of the Gospel of Mark. And it shows us the deepest work Jesus came to do. And by the end of this story that we'll look at here, we see the people marveling at Jesus. They're surprised by him. So why are they marveling at Jesus by the end of the story? Well, because when they watch Jesus, they're seeing a unique authority and a surprising grace, especially here, his authority to forgive sins. So when Jesus forgives sins, he's reaching down into the deepest part of us. Uh, he's bringing healing to the core of who we are. And he's healing the most important relationship that's been broken, which is our relationship with our creator. And so that's what we see here. Forgiveness is the pathway toward a restored relationship with God. And so forgiveness of sins is at the heart of what Jesus came to do. And through this story, God is inviting us to join with the people who watch this and marvel at Jesus with great joy. So we're used to the idea by, of forgiveness of sins by now. Heard it a lot. No, that's what Jesus came to do. We don't think we need to marvel at it, but we should. 
and this story shows us why. So let's read it together. Mark chapter 2, the first 12 verses. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us your word here, and we're so thankful that this story is real and by your spirit powerful today to help us to understand who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So we pray that you would do what only you can do. Give us understanding, warm our hearts, and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this story shows us that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. So we need forgiveness of sins more than anything else, even healing, And Jesus alone provides it. That's the point of this story. And it's here for us to be convinced of that and to marvel at Jesus for it. So let's walk through this in three parts. We'll see that there's no deeper need than forgiveness. There's no greater cost, and there's no one like Jesus. So no deeper need, no greater cost, and no one like him. First, no deeper need. Jesus has just returned to the town that he was living in for some time. And in Mark chapter 1, we saw that this town is where he called his first disciples from. He taught about God's kingdom. He cast out demons. He healed many people from sickness. And then he traveled around the whole region around there doing those things, announcing that God's kingdom had drawn near. God's kingdom was dawning in his ministry, and he's showing the power by removing evil, healing sickness, bringing comprehensive renewal to people as a foretaste of the kind of comprehensive renewal that will come when the kingdom comes in its fullness when God makes all things new. So this is what he's been doing, and now he's returned to his home. And what happens here shows us the heart of why Jesus came. Verse 2, you can read it with me. Many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door, And he was preaching the word to them. So here's the scene. This house that Jesus was living in is filled with a crowd of people so that there's no more space. People can't even fit in the door. 
anymore, but a paralyzed man wants to come near because he wants healing. He believes that Jesus can heal him. No doubt by now, the people have heard Jesus teach. They've seen what he's done. So they've heard about the dawn of the kingdom. They've heard Jesus call to repent and believe. And they want in on this. And so this man wants healing. So four of his friends carry him on this stretcher-like bed that he was on, but they can't get in, so they get creative. And so they had flat roofs in the houses there, so you could access that roof from a ladder or a staircase on the outside. It was a pretty functional living space to store things or sleep at night in the hot summers. And so these guys carried him up there, and they started tearing the roof away. So the roof would have been made with beams of wood and sticks and thatch and mud. So it wouldn't be quite like the demolition that would be required for one of a typical roof today. But it's not just kind of just shifting over a panel or something either. Um, So they're doing this pretty radical, risky act here, and then they lower their friend into the room in the house. So now what would most people see here? They would see a mess. What does Jesus see? Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus saw faith. Jesus saw faith through what they did. They trusted Jesus so completely, so thoroughly, that they took a risk. Faith, we're learning about faith here, and we will throughout the Gospel of Mark. Faith is not just kind of agreeing to God's existence or some facts merely. Faith is banking on what you know to be true and therefore doing whatever it takes to act upon it. So these men are showing that faith does whatever it needs to do in order to get to Jesus. True faith is about trusting Jesus to do what only he can do and then taking risks to get to him. So Jesus' response now is the biggest surprise in the story. He certainly doesn't say, look what you just did to my house. But he doesn't even say, I will heal you. Look at verse 5. He says, son or child, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus will heal the man, but he's doing something profound in this moment. He's showing us that forgiveness is a deeper need than healing. He's showing that this man's deepest problem wasn't physical, but spiritual. His biggest problem was not his broken body, but his broken relationship with God. So Jesus will heal him. Healing matters to Jesus. But the deepest need that this man has and that anyone has is not physical healing, but a deeper healing. Forgiveness is primary. So this man's physical healing had a level of importance and urgency, but forgiveness of sins is always the most urgent, most important problem. And so Jesus gives this forgiveness. And forgiveness is the most urgent and important matter for two reasons. First, because this is restoring our broken relationship with God. So Jesus has a comprehensive ministry. We've seen him healing people of their sicknesses and diseases and casting out demons. But physical and spiritual needs then go together. They're always inseparable for Jesus. We see him doing both of them all the time. However, although the physical and spiritual are inseparable, the spiritual need of forgiveness is the priority. It is the most important of the two. So though we see Jesus forgiving sin and healing from diseases, 
We need to recognize both are important. Forgiveness is primary because it is a restoration of the relationship that we have with our Creator. We were made to know our Creator, and our sin has separated us from Him. Second reason why this is the most urgent and most important need is because we have real guilt. That man had real guilt. Our deepest problem is not sickness or broken bodies, but objective guilt before the God who made us. So the Bible teaches that every single person has rejected God. We've put something else in His place. We've become devoted to something else other than God. So God makes us, He gives us Himself and creation as a gift, and then we push Him to the side, we take His gifts, and we enjoy those gifts more than we enjoy Him, and we don't give thanks to Him. Uh, we get, become devoted to His creation. So for some, it's devotion to money and the things that it can buy and the security that it gives. For some, it's a devotion to success, success in any sphere of life, perhaps in business or reputation, or to being devoted to power in relationships and maintaining that power and control. Or it's devotion to comfort and ease and just finding a life that has the least amount of problems and putting anything else other than God in the highest place of our affections and for our devotion is called idolatry. And it's because of our idolatry and this disorder of loves in our heart that we are so often so selfish. So we fail to love God and prioritize Him, and then out of that flows a lack of love for one another, which is why our world is a mess. The, the mess of this world is the symptom of us being disconnected with God and pushing Him out of our hearts and putting other things in their place. So these four friends carry this man to Jesus, but this man is also carrying something with him. He's carrying the weight of objective guilt before his maker. He carried the weight of his sins and the eternal judgment that they deserve. And so the burden on that stretcher was more than the weight of this man. It was also the weight of this man's guilt. And so Jesus looks him in the eye and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. He lifts that burden completely. He just removes it entirely. Finally, fully, freely, that's how Jesus forgives. This is what the Apostle Paul will later call justification by faith, declared righteous through faith in Christ. So this man was justified. He was forgiven and declared righteous by faith, not because of his goodness, not because Jesus had heard of all these good deeds he did. No, but because Jesus knew of his bad deeds, his sin. And so Jesus receives him by grace. So what's that showing us? Well, it's showing us that Jesus does not just solve our important but secondary problems. He came to solve our most important and most urgent issue, which is restoring our relationship with our maker through forgiveness. Now, I know that some of you or maybe some of your friends may have issues with Christianity at exactly this point, this point of making so much of the forgiveness of sins. One concern is that this can seem so overly negative. This focuses on sins and guilt and our need for forgiveness. It doesn't seem like a positive message. 
I mean, doesn't this make people, wouldn't this kind of teaching make people go around just being sad and sullen and morose? And the answer is, this actually should have the opposite effect. Because Jesus is not coming to ultimately make people feel lousy, but to make them feel liberated. That's what he's doing in this moment. He's not saying to this man, you think you just need healing, um, but I want you to be burdened the weight of your sins for the rest of your life. You need to hear what a bad person you are, and you need to feel terrible about it. No. He's saying, here's reality. You are a sinner, and you do have guilt, and I came to remove it. I came to free you from that burden, and I came to forgive you of your sins. Now, the story doesn't tell us a lot about the backstory of this man, um, I'd understand by just putting this together with so many other stories that this man, like so many others that were coming to Jesus, had heard his message of forgiveness and the gospel of the kingdom and repentance and belief in him for the forgiveness of sins, as John the Baptist was even preaching before him. So this man, I don't think we need to assume that he had no category of sins and Jesus kind of declares him forgiven even though he's not even looking for it. Um, I think we can assume that this man and his friends were coming to Jesus for holistic healing. Um, and Jesus encourages this man with the declaration of the forgiveness of sins. But again, this can be still this concern that um, why do Christians make so much of this aspect of sin? So Christians take sin, sin seriously ultimately because it is serious. Uh, it's reality. We face it. And because it leads us in facing the reality of sin. It leads us to a deeper, greater, lasting joy, taking the joy of grace seriously. So here's how John Stott begins um, his book called Confess Your Sins. It's an excellent book. I think we have some copies in our resource corner. So here's how he begins the book, Confess Your Sins. The title of this book, Confess Your Sins, will no doubt seem to some a clear indication of the unhealthy preoccupation of Christians with their sins. There's no need for us to be offended by this criticism. We are not in the least ashamed of the fact that we think and talk a lot about sin. We do so for the simple fact that we are realists. Sin is an ugly fact. It is to be neither ignored nor ridiculed, but honestly faced. Indeed, Christianity is the only religion in the world which takes sin seriously, and then here's the key, and offers a satisfactory remedy for it. And what is that satisfactory remedy? It's calling people to take their sin seriously and then hearing the declaration, child, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus shows us there's no greater need than forgiveness of sins. Second, there's no greater cost. Jesus' statement shocked the religious leaders who were part of that crowd that day. Look again at verses 6 to 8 with me. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? So notice that Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. They didn't say this out loud. Did you notice that? They aren't publicly objecting to him 
at this point. Jesus is perceiving their thoughts. He knows that they're thinking, this man's blaspheming. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And so he responds to their thoughts by speaking to them, saying, why are you questioning these things? So this would be deeply unsettling, wouldn't it? They, they were not yet picking a fight. They'll do that later. They didn't say anything yet, but Jesus knows their thoughts, and he draws attention to it. I was talking about this story with a friend of mine, uh, James Ferris. He's a pastor in the city, and he said that he used to stand on the street in Broad Ripple to be able to just speak to people about Jesus, whoever was interested in talking about Jesus. He'd speak with them, and he would sometimes say to people passing by, Jesus knows what's on your heart right now, and he said that that statement ended up being the most disconcerting thing he ever said in those times. He said people would snap their heads back at him and look at him when he said it. It's unsettling to think that someone might know what we're thinking and feeling at any given time and all the time. And Jesus does. The scribes have good theology here. They know that God alone can forgive sins. But they don't have a good Christology yet, right? A doctrine of Jesus. They know that God alone can forgive sins, but they don't think that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so they think that he is falsely claiming to do what God alone can do. By the way, story after story in the Gospel of Mark demonstrates for us that Jesus is God in the flesh. So if you're looking for the Gospel of Mark to come out and say every once in a while, look, Jesus is God, you won't find that. And because of that, many people say, man, this is a Christian made-up thing, later centuries. Uh, but if you just read carefully at the stories of what's actually going on, Mark is everywhere showing us that Jesus is divine. He is God. Over and over he's showing us, and it's stories like this that show us. Jesus is doing what God alone can do. He's certainly claiming to be God and demonstrating this. So they're needing to learn who Jesus is, and so Jesus asked them a question in verse 9. Which is easier, to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? So what do you think? Which is easier? Is it easier to say this man is forgiven or to say this man get up and walk? It's actually a hard question. But I think Jesus is working with their assumptions here. They all believe that it would be harder to heal this man than to forgive sins. So they would think that if Jesus can do the harder thing, which is healing, then that would confirm that he can do the easier thing, which is declare forgiveness here. So verse 10, Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home, and he does. So Jesus does the harder thing, healing, in order to confirm that if he can do that harder thing, then yes, he can do that either easier thing, which is the forgiveness of sin. So that's the logic here. But we know that there's another way to answer this question. Because we know where Jesus is heading in the Gospel of Mark. No one here in this story knows about the cross yet. Jesus has not yet told them that he came to die. Now, if they knew the Old Testament well enough, they'd be able to piece it together. Um, but no one there is thinking this yet. He won't reveal that explicitly 
until chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark. And when he does, he tells his disciples, and Peter himself rebukes Jesus for the thought of it. They just don't have a category for this. And so Jesus is going to die, but they don't know it. There's no one who knows then, in that moment, what it will actually cost for Jesus to forgive this man's sins. No one knows what the harder thing really is yet. They think it's easier to heal the man than to forgive him. So Jesus heals him to convince them that he can forgive, but Jesus knows, and one day will show them that forgiveness is the hardest. It will cost him his life. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus gives us one of the clearest statements of this. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when he looks at this paralyzed man then, he sees this man's heavier burden. He sees the burden of sin and guilt and eternal judgment hanging over him. And Jesus looks at him knowing that to forgive this man, he himself will have to take that burden upon himself. He will have to carry this man's sins. He will have to bear the weight of eternal judgment on the cross. He knows this as he declares him forgiven. So he will have to be crushed in order for this man to be able to rise and walk. And he does it willingly and he does it affectionately. You can hear it in his tone, can't you? Son, your sins are forgiven. He says that to all of us. He invites everyone to come to him to meet our deepest need. He went to the cross for that so that he could say to you, if you will have him, son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. So he meets our, need, our greatest need at the deepest, the greatest cost. And this means finally there's no one like him. Notice how everyone responds here in verse 12. They were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's just look at both of those phrases here. First, they were all amazed and glorified God. So they are amazed that Jesus, I mean, just imagine if you were there. This man, Jesus, in the midst of this crowd, this guy's lowered. You don't know how he's going to respond. He declares his sins forgiven, and then he says, rise and walk, and the man just does it. So they're amazed. But the whole point here of this healing was to confirm that he also can forgive sins, and he does. So they're amazed because they're seeing Jesus do what God alone can do, both forgive sins and heal together. So again, Jesus is bringing this holistic, multifaceted, comprehensive renewal into the world, physical renewal, spiritual healing. And their primary response then to this is wonder and praise. And let's not miss the wonder of forgiveness here. Sometimes when we think about Jesus forgiving sinners, we first can think uh, it doesn't seem fair that only some are saved. It doesn't seem fair that only those who trust Christ are forgiven. Have you had that thought before? Maybe some of your friends do. But the main response that we should have is amazement that any are forgiven. No one deserves Jesus' grace, which is why we call it grace. It would be fair and just for God to leave everyone under the burden of their sins and guilt to face eternal judgment. 
But Jesus comes to spread grace to all who will come to him. And so the question is not, why are only some forgiven? But praise God that he forgives. Praise Jesus for meeting our greatest need at the greatest cost. So let's be amazed and glorify God. Now there's a place to ask hard questions. Uh, but we need to make sure we're not having wrong assumptions behind those questions. Like, it, this isn't fair for Jesus to not forgive everyone. No, no, no. This is grace. And he extends it to so many, and that's the wonder. Now look at the second phrase. They said, we never saw anything like this. So they recognize that what's happening in front of them is utterly unique. There's no one like him. He is singular in history. He taught with authority and grace. He healed with authority and power and compassion. And he directly forgave sins, what God alone can do. There's been no other leader in human history like him. And at the heart of what he brings is grace. And that also is utterly unique among all world religions. All religious systems of the world, every other religious system at bottom is a system of works. Do these things, follow this path, be better, and you will then reach salvation, enlightenment, nirvana, paradise. Every other religion is good advice. What Jesus brings is an announcement of good news all the way to the bottom, which is why everyone who saw him here said, we have never seen anything like this. There's a great Scottish theologian named Donald MacLeod, and he has often said that if he couldn't worship Jesus, he would worship those who invented him. Now, here's his point. Uh, he, he read a lot of the greatest literature of the world. But with Jesus, he says, there is something of an entirely different order. There is no one comparable. Here's how he put it. Such grandeur, such compassion, such magnificent teaching, such magnificent ways of teaching, such marvelous relationships with men, with women, with children, so good and yet so credible, so divine and yet so human. And so he said that this narrative totally convinces us that if we came to him, we really would find rest for our souls. Jesus convinces us of this by just the force of who he is and the wonder of who he is and the uniqueness of who he is. So maybe you're here as someone who is just getting started in exploring who Jesus is. Or maybe you have had ideas of Jesus in your mind and you have not understood him. You've not really been drawn to him but you're wondering if maybe it hasn't been the real Jesus you've been dealing with. That the real Jesus is maybe more wonderful than you were thinking. Maybe a friend has brought you today. Maybe you have a friend whom you're talking with these days about Jesus. And so I'd encourage you to focus on the uniqueness of Jesus as he presents himself on the pages of the Bible. Read the Gospel of Mark. Look at him. Watch him. Listen to him. Compare him with any other religious or philosophical or political leader. He's entirely unique of a different order altogether. So just a couple implications at the end here. First, for each of us personally, let's 
engage or re-engage with the wonder of forgiveness. Forgiveness is our deepest need. It's not just that we may sometimes feel guilt subjectively. It's that even if we don't feel that guilt subjectively, we have it objectively. It's real. We've sinned against God with every impure thought, with every harmful word, with every unkind action. And Jesus pays the greatest cost by carrying our sins and guilt upon himself. So if you have never received the forgiveness of sins from Jesus, why wait? Why not right now hear him say to you, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven, and begin following this incomparable God-man, Jesus. He invites you to be restored to him. And for those of you who already are Christians, I wonder if you have embraced the wonder of forgiveness as deeply as you could, or maybe you have drifted from the wonder of forgiveness. I felt that this past week in reading this text again and just thinking at different times in my life how I was just shocked by the wonder of it all and how in different seasons and even right now thinking, oh Lord, help me see the wonder of this and not be bored by the wonder of Jesus here and forgiveness. So maybe you've received forgiveness, but you've just barely sensed what that gift is, or you've drifted from the wonder of it. So let me share what I mean by telling you um, something about C.S. Lewis and how he experienced forgiveness. Um, Listen to what he wrote. He said, I had been a Christian for many years before I really believed in the forgiveness of sins, or more strictly, before my theoretical belief became a reality to me. He said, I had assented to the doctrine years earlier and would have said I believed it. Then, one blessed day, it suddenly became real to me and made what I had previously called belief look absolutely unreal. So he is referring to a time in his life, right, when he had believed in the forgiveness of sins. And I think if we understand what he's saying here, he really did believe it. It wasn't... He's, he's making a big contrast here, but he really did believe it. But then, at a certain point later, it dropped down more deeply to the point where he believed it so deeply that he looks back at his previous belief and says, is that even real? That, that can happen. As the gospel presses deeper into our hearts, we then can look back and say, man, what I, was I even a Christian last year? And it's not to say we weren't. It's just that's what happens. The deeper we go, the more we look back and say, wow, the wonder of this that the Lord has helped me see. Now, here's what's interesting. The time in C.S. Lewis's life that he's referring to was after he had written most of the books that you C.S. Lewis lovers have read. He was 51 years old. He said that he had believed in the forgiveness of sins intellectually, and then it became more real. So how do we re-engage with the wonder of forgiveness? How would you practically take a step this morning? Well, one of the most important ways is through honesty and confession. Facing the reality of our sins. Being self-aware of who we are and what we've done. 1 John 1, 7 shows us the pathway to not just being forgiven, but feeling forgiven. 1 John 1, 7, um, this would be a great one to memorize. Like a top 10 in the Bible for your walk with the Lord. It says this, If we walk in the light... 
as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So if we walk in the light, what is walking in the light? It's not being sinless and perfect. The context of this verse makes that really clear. It says if we say we don't have sin, we're lying. Um, walking in the light is in contrast to walking in the darkness. And the darkness in this context is hiding. In other words, walking in the light is stepping out from hiding, acknowledging reality and being honest with ourselves and with others about who we are. So that's coming out of hiding. I mean, Genesis 3, the first effect of sin in the world, the Lord shows up to walk with them and Adam and Eve hide. That's the effect of sin. And so walking in the light is coming out of hiding. And two things happen when we do this, when we come out of hiding. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So coming out of hiding. That's taking what is in us that we don't want to acknowledge to the Lord or even admit to anyone else and bringing it out. Confessing it to the Lord and finding a trusted brother or sister and saying, I need to walk in the light. Can I tell you what I've done? Um, that's walking in the light. And the result of that is real fellowship, real friendship with one another, and cleansing, the fresh forgiveness of sin felt forgiveness. And that's the kind of culture we want to cultivate here, isn't it? That's what we want as a church family, walking in the light together. We want it to be obvious to the world that we believe in the real Jesus who forgives real sinners, who have real sins, and he does it with real grace, and we are living with real joy. That's what we want. Second, this gives us a message to share. So Jesus is showing that we can have a holistic approach to ministry just like he did. Jesus cares about all needs and especially our deepest needs, which is forgiveness of sins. So these four friends that bring this man, they model for us what it looks like to remove barriers to bring people to Jesus for healing and for forgiveness. So let's creatively find ways to bring people to come to know the real Jesus. And you don't need to put yourself in the story as one of those four men. You can put yourself in the story as this paralytic who is forgiven of his sins. That's who we are. And so now we go and we just welcome others to enjoy what we have experienced from the Lord together. So the forgiveness of sins, no small thing something to celebrate together, enjoy together, experience personally and deeply, walking in the light together, in real friendship, in our small groups. I mean, after the service today, maybe you need to just find someone and say, I need to walk in the light. Can I tell you? Can I share something with you? And by the way, we're talking about this just the past couple of days with, when I was with these men at the retreat. Um, how do you respond to someone when they confess sin to you? Your first response should not be, let me tell you some advice on how you could have prevented that and how you can get better. There is a place for that. But in that moment when someone is stepping out of the darkness, is coming to be honest and vulnerable with you whom they're trusting to keep this 
confidential and to deal graciously. But what they need is they need the welcome of Jesus. They need to hear from you and see from you a disposition of welcome. And so what you can do is just say, thank you for sharing that. Can I pray with you? And then you pray that they would feel forgiven and that the Lord would transform them. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that we have this deep need that only you can heal through the blood of Jesus. And we are so thankful that you do and that you are happy to do so. And so we pray that you would lead us, stir our hearts to face our sins, but to bring them out for healing and life and liberation and forgiveness and joy. So would you do that by the power of the Holy Spirit for us? And would you lead us to welcome others this very week to know the real Jesus? Amen.